Well, I have a trivia question for you this morning. I was uh, recently driving on this uh, new section of Pine Lake Road over here between uh, 56th and 70th Street. Yeah, some other people have been over there. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, tricky now. It winds a little bit and it's got some roundabouts. And clearly a lot of people are still trying to figure it out. So I was in the midst of some traffic and both lanes eastbound were kind of bumper to bumper with a lot of people. And the traffic was moving pretty slow. And I thought, well, we've got to be a little patient. Everyone's trying to figure this out. But I happened to see a car in my rearview mirror. And I could just tell by the way this guy was driving, he wasn't feeling real patient with how people were driving. He seemed to be determined to get people out of his way. And so I noticed him, he kind of made an aggressive move and it kind of threw it into the left lane and that managed to get him ahead a couple cars and I thought, wow, he's, this is, we're just car by car, where's he think he's going to go? But he then just pretty much recklessly threw it into the right lane in front of another car and then we drove for about another 30 seconds and then finally he threw it into the left lane again and he proved that he was going to get to the head of the line in front of all of us by the time we reached the roundabout. So here's my trivia question. What kind of car was that person driving? Now you can do this at home in your living room if you're watching online. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand here in the auditorium. This is a multiple choice question. So the choices are A, was he driving an old farm truck? B, was he driving a slightly used Detroit made sedan? Or C, was he driving a new high-end luxury SUV? All right, those are your choices. So how many people think it was A, an old farm truck? Raise your hand. All right, got a, got a couple people thinking that. How many people think it was a mid-sized Detroit-made sedan? Who thinks it was that? Yeah, we've got a couple people that, that are thinking that. How many of you think the answer is C, a new luxury SUV? Wow. Look at all of the hands all across the auditorium. Now, here's the question. Why would so many of us instantly guess that? And more importantly, what can and what should we learn from it? If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10. Every year for many years here at Lincoln Berean, we have taken some time in the month of January to talk to you about money. And the reason is because the scripture has so much to say about it, and it is so important for our followership of Jesus Christ. So today we're going to talk from Mark 10, 17 through 31, and then next week Brian will share another message from another passage and another angle. So look with me at Mark 10, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want to notice just a couple of things about this encounter and how this man approaches Jesus. What did the text say about how he came up to Jesus? He said he ran up to him. Jesus is beginning to move out, and clearly this man has an eagerness to, to catch and have an encounter with Jesus. Now, that's noteworthy because in the culture in which they lived, it would be considered undignified for a man to run. So people didn't run. Well, this guy did. 
which indicates he had a genuine eagerness to have an encounter with Jesus. There's another thing we notice about how he approached Jesus. He ran up to him and he knelt before him. He approached Jesus with eagerness. He approached Jesus with respectfulness. Now, it's even more significant if we consider who this man may have been. Here we're told simply that he's a man, but this account is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And in Matthew, we're told that he's young. And in Luke, we're told that he's a ruler. In fact, some commentators believe that he was likely a member of the Sanhedrin. And in all three accounts, we're going to find out that he was quite rich. Thus, the account of the rich young ruler. Now, notice his dialogue with Jesus. He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I find Jesus' response to be interesting. And I wonder why did he say that to this rich young man? And the reality could be what we talked about two weeks ago in Philippians, that in the incarnation, the son was seeking to continually give all glory to God as he, as he humbly modeled his godliness. I think there's possibly another angle we could look at this dialogue with, because if we think of how he responded to this man, Jesus' words clarify this man's perspective on who he is. How did this man see Jesus? Who was Jesus to him? He was a good teacher. But when Jesus points out that only God is good, this man says absolutely nothing, confirming his misunderstanding about the true nature of the one with whom he is speaking. It was, and it still is, a common mistake. Just a couple of chapters back in Mark 8, we find the disciples asking, who do people say that I am? And the disciples recounted all kinds of answers from the crowds, all of which lacked a full understanding of the true nature of Jesus. But when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter nails it. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Keep in mind the difference between Peter's understanding and response to Jesus and this man's in how he sees Jesus. It'll be really important as the story unfolds. Now, there's a second thing I want you to notice about the dialogue. What does the man say? He says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He wants eternal life, which is good, of course, but he seems to see it as an objective to obtain what shall I do? Inherent in his question and his perspective is his belief that he himself shall somehow be able to earn eternal life. He doesn't know how to ask the question of, shall I receive eternal life? He doesn't think to ask the question, how might I find eternal life? He says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Note to the emphasis on I what shall I do? In this young man's mind, Jesus is simply probably a good teacher who possesses important information to inform his actions to help him accomplish his goal. And notice Jesus' reply in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. 
Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. I find this reply from Jesus to be interesting. After all, in John 17, in Jesus' prayer that is recorded to the Father, he says this. He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So why doesn't Jesus tell this man that eternal life is found in knowing him? Perhaps it's because the man expressed no interest in knowing him. Jesus answered the question that was asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he told the man what he already knew from the law. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus reviews all of the horizontal commands from the Ten Commandments governing human behavior. And as he does, I can just picture this man mentally saying, check, check, check. Verse 20, and he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Now that may seem to us to be an arrogant response, but he was actually probably just being honest. After all, what did Paul say about himself in Philippians 3? He said that in regard to legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. And if this man were a member of the Sanhedrin, he very likely was taught to obey those commands from a very young age. So he likely isn't being arrogant or deceitful. He is simply, like so many, completely failing to see the forest for the trees. He thought the point was simply being a good person. Now again, remember that as we contrast his perspective with Peter's later in the message. You know, it's also important to note that this man's error is still the error often made today. What does it mean to be a Christian? Many think it's just about a list of things that we believe and do. And though we in our Bible church circles would shake our heads at churches that could say you would somehow be able to earn your salvation, at the same time, we often turn Christianity into something that has very little to do with Christ. We can be just as religious as a person in another church. We too, like this man, can be so close to Jesus and not even see him. Do you realize that one of the definitions in Webster's dictionary that has been published of what it is to be a Christian is this, quote, a decent, respectable person. Why would the dictionary define a Christian in that way? Because that's how the culture had defined it. Perhaps we've shown the world a Christianity with no Christ. Incidentally, the newer editions of Webster's Dictionary don't have that definition. Probably not because they think it's a bad definition, but probably because they no longer see the church as being even that. So here we have an eager man. 
He has been religious his entire life. He is face to face with Jesus and he doesn't even see him. And how does Jesus respond? He loves him. He loves him by going straight to the heart of the matter, to what really mattered in this man's heart. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. What an interesting encounter. We're told that Jesus loved him, but then Jesus immediately tells him, go sell everything you own and give the money to the poor. Wow, that is a big ask. And why would Jesus tell him to do that? It's because Jesus loved him. And what this man really needed was to have his heart exposed. You see, he was convinced that he was fine, that he was doing all the right things. If he lived in Lincoln today, he'd probably be here at Berean, regularly attending, involved in the church, and living life as a decent, respectable person. But all his religiosity and goodness masked the reality of what had his heart, his money. Thus, Jesus loves him enough to call him out, to expose the true love of his life. Jesus loved him, but he loved his money. Jesus gave this man, if you look in verse 21, an opportunity. And it was an opportunity to have everything that he wanted. First, knowing that he valued treasure, Jesus gave him a pathway to have treasure that will last forever. He said, you will have treasure in heaven. Second, Jesus invited him not only to inherit eternal treasure, but to actually enter into a close relationship with himself. Jesus said, come follow me to this man. Do you realize that there are only 17 times recorded in scripture when Jesus specifically invited someone to come and follow him? And this is one of them. So how did this man respond to this incredible invitation. Well, verse 22 tells us, he was saddened and he went away. Why? Well, the verse tells us because he owned much property. In other words, the cost was just too high. Again, later, I want to contrast the response of this man with Peter. So keep that response in mind. But first, imagine how bewildering it must have been for God incarnate, who offers everything only to see people most often settle for what comparatively is nothing. Do you remember the two parables that Jesus shared in Matthew 13? 
the parable of the treasure in the field, and the parable of the pearl of great price, both had the same point. Both of them illustrated a situation where someone found and discovered a treasure. And that treasure was of such incredible worth that they literally went and sold everything that they had in order to be able to own the place where they could have that treasure. It was the great treasure in the field. It was the great pearl of great price worth giving all that they had for. But here in Mark 10, we find one who believed that the treasure of this world is of greater worth than a relationship with God himself and even the very treasure of heaven. Simply put, Jesus was not, for this man, the pearl of great price. The important question this morning is, is he for you? Do you genuinely believe that Jesus is of greater worth than anything this world has to offer. I promise you, he is. Verse 23, and Jesus looking around, he said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You can almost picture Jesus shaking his head in dismay. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Repetition is a mechanism for emphasis. And Jesus twice repeats his point, and then he dramatically illustrates it by choosing what would have been to them the largest animal in Palestine, a camel, and talking about that going through the smallest hole they could imagine, an eye of a needle. And they are utterly astonished. They understand that Jesus is making a very strong and clear point. Verse 26, they were even more astonished and said to them, him, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Who then can be saved? The disciples' response gives us an indication into their mindset. They were astonished by this account. They were astonished by Jesus' response. Because they would have thought that if anyone had an inside track to inheriting the kingdom and eternal life, it'd be this man. He had everything. And if he were a member of the Sanhedrin, he was obedient to the law all the way through his going, growing up. Surely this would be one who would inherit eternal life. He wouldn't be slipping in the back door. They would probably envision him riding that camel right through the front. You know, it's easy for us even today to fall into the same kind of mindset of thinking that we are somehow worthy. That something about us makes us deserving of the grace and the goodness of God. But Jesus is clear. With people, this is impossible. There is nothing anyone can humanly do to earn eternal life. 
You know, when we read Jesus' words about this wealthy man and his illustration of the eye through the camel, it's, it's so striking to us. And I think we have a tendency to want to quickly dismiss it or to, to move past it. We want to, we want to explain it away and say, no, it's, it's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money. Or it's the fact that we're trusting in our riches. All of which, of course, is true. But let us not miss the fact that the point of this passage is to say that money itself is not simply neutral. It's dangerous. Because wealth messes with our heads and makes us more likely to believe the lies being propagated by deceitful riches. It was destructive to this rich young ruler. It can be destructive to you and I as well. I started with my trivia question in that illustration. Why is it that so many immediately answered C, that that person was likely driving a luxury car? It's because we know this generalization that sometimes people who have great wealth can tend to begin to think that they are perhaps more important or perhaps even more valuable than someone else. Because wealth messes with our heads. It's easy to look at someone and say, they didn't accomplish what I did. They don't have what I did. He didn't do that. She didn't do that. I must be more valuable than they are. Therefore, I'm impatient and I can't wait for anyone. Now, that may seem like a pretty sweeping and unfair generalization. But what if there was research that backed it up? Well, recently, a professor at the University of Helsinki was wondering about this very thing and did a research project on it. Now, this is his question, not mine. He said, why do BMW and Audi owners often seem to drive like idiots? He goes on, he's a professor of social psychology, and he goes on to say, I had noticed that the ones most likely to run a red light, not give way to pedestrians, and generally drive recklessly and too fast, were often the ones driving fast German cars. Previous research has also confirmed, confirmed that drivers of expensive cars are more likely to break traffic regulations. This phenomenon has been explained with the common assumption that wealth has a corrupting effect on people, resulting, for example in high-status consumption and unethical behavior in various situations. The study showed self-centered men who are argumentative, stubborn, disagreeable, and unempathetic are much more likely to own a high-status car, such as an Audi, BMW, or Mercedes. Now... It's really important for me to say that things that are generally true are not universally true. We all know people who drive one of those brands of cars, and some of them are wonderful people. In fact, I have a really good friend who drives a BMW, and he is a great guy. In fact, he may or may not have preached here on Christmas Eve, but, uh, you know, he's, he's a 
good and, and courteous driver. And just because he drives an old BMW doesn't mean he's like this. That which is generally true is not necessarily universally true. But the professor goes on in the study to say a couple of important things. He said these personality traits explain the desire to own high-status products. And the same traits also explain why such people break traffic regulations more frequently than others. But we also found that these are people who often see themselves as superior and are keen to display this to others. Money messes with our heads. It can so easily lead to the temptation to a pride and believing in our own self-sufficiency. It can lead to what I call the myth of the self-made man. In America, we have been taught over and over that we can simply pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and accomplish anything. And when we do, we think we have done it. We think it's because of our hard work and our intelligence and our ability that we've somehow created these things. I want to take every American to Mumbai for one day. I want to take them into Dharavi, into that slum city where people are born into abject poverty. I want to take them to another part of the city, to Grant Road, where the, where the red light district is where you will find women whose stories are unimaginable, including one gal that I met who was literally sold by her family at age 12 into sex slavery. And I want to ask every so-called self-made man or woman, do you really believe that if you were born in one of these places into one of these stories, you would have what you have today? I call it geographic grace. We had absolutely nothing to do with where we were born and the advantages that come along with it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 reminds us, what do you have that you have not received? It says, why then do you boast as though you had not received it? And it's not just the advantages of where we live. Where did your intelligence come from? Your creativity, your ability, your mind. Did you have anything to do with any of those things? No, as James 1.17 reminds us, every good and perfect gift is from above. Now, it is important to say that we all know people of great wealth whose hearts are fully given to Jesus Christ and who are extravagantly generous. Some of the most godly people I know are extravagantly wealthy. But we have to acknowledge that Jesus himself is saying, that possessing wealth creates an inherent temptation to trust in our wealth and in ourselves rather than trusting in Christ as the only one who can make us worthy. It can also tempt us to give our hearts and our lives for the things of this world rather than having genuine hope in God's eternal plan. Now, for many of us sitting here this morning, it would be easy to say, oh, I am so glad I'm not super wealthy because this isn't about me. But it's actually about all of us. Do you realize that if you have just 
$210 in money or assets, you have greater wealth than over 50% of the people in the world. That means right here in this auditorium this morning, there are a number of children Due to mom and dad or grandpa and grandma setting up a savings account or a college fund, there are kids in this opportunity, in this auditorium, who are more wealthy than 50% of the people in the world. What's more, according to a report in the Washington Post, an annual income of $59,000 would mean having greater wealth than 91% of the people on earth. That's just a little above the median income in Lincoln, Nebraska. That means an average income in Lincoln makes us extravagantly wealthy throughout the world. We as Americans must be aware of the danger of deceitful riches and the ways that our wealth can subtly undermine our first love pursuit of the only one who is a true treasure, and that's Jesus Christ. So to help us see the beauty of a different way, the text in all three synoptics bookend the encounter with the rich young ruler with two starkly contrasting pictures. We'll end with the preceding one, but I want to first look at the one that follows. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, Behold, We have left everything and followed you. In their astonishment at what Jesus has said, you can just picture Peter reflecting back on their life and their story. And Jesus responds in verse 29, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus promises that we will never lose when we choose to trust and to follow Him. Now, make no mistake. He is not promising great worldly wealth. He even goes so far as to point out, in following him, there will be persecutions. But he is promising that what we will receive will be so much, even in this life, that it will seem a hundred times better than whatever we may have had by living for the things of this world. And when all is said and done... As he tells us in verse 31, the tables will be turned upside down. Those whom the world sees as having first place will end up last. And those the world sees as lowly and insignificant followers of Jesus, he will make them first. Peter's reflective comment in verse 28 just causes me to think about his story. I've always been so amazed by the account in Luke 5, where Jesus is there 
by the Sea of Galilee, and he's teaching, and there is Peter and his brother Andrew and their partners, James and John, and they have been out fishing all night, and there they are cleaning their nets while Jesus is teaching. And Jesus wants to be better heard, so he gets into Peter's boat. and He teaches the people. And when he's done, Jesus looks at Peter, and he says to him, put your nets down for a catch. And Peter, this seasoned fisherman, looks at Jesus and says, Master, we've worked hard all night and have caught nothing. But it's almost like you can see the gleam in Jesus' eyes. Because Peter looks at him and he says, But because you say so, we will let down the nets. They go out to, into the sea. They drop their nets And they have what is likely the greatest catch of their entire lives. And what a scene of celebration and joy it would have been as they're pulling in the nets and the fish are coming flopping into the boat. And oh, how easy it would have been for Peter to see all of these fish and think that they were the wealth in his boat. But by the grace of God, a moment occurs where Peter looks away from the fish to the one who gave the fish. And he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And they pull the hall up onto the shore. And there they leave their nets, their boats, all of those fish, their families, everything. And they go out and follow Jesus. Peter listened to Jesus. Peter saw Jesus accurately. Peter saw himself correctly. And as a result, Peter leaves everything To follow the one who is truly the pearl of great price. So what is the difference between a Peter and the rich young ruler? It is the willingness to believe that Jesus is worth everything. And to leave behind the pursuit of life through the world system in order to find true life in and through Jesus Christ. I mentioned that the story of the rich young ruler is surrounded by contrasting pictures. It's followed by Peter and the disciples. It's preceded by the faith of a child. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Certainly in our text, Jesus is making the point that money can easily keep us from Christ because it tempts us to trust in ourselves. But life isn't nearly as complicated for kids. You don't hear of too many children who think they're sufficient to handle things on their own. They inherently understand their dependence and for the most part, they're fine with it. Of course, occasionally all of our kids cop an attitude and think they're pretty big stuff. 
But it doesn't take very long for them to come crashing back to earth and realize that on their own, they got nothing. I mean, how many of us have had one of our kids in elementary school get fed up with things and say, I'm running away from home? Well, not too many parents are very threatened by that strategy because we know that plan won't last very long. And the beauty is that under the umbrella of protection and provision of truly loving parents, a kid has everything. Left to trust in themselves, they are in deep trouble. Because that's what it's like to be a kid. Ultimately, you got nothing. Huh. Doesn't that sound like what Peter said to Jesus? When the crowds were all abandoning Christ and Peter and Jesus turns to the disciples and said, are you leaving too? What did Peter say in response? Lord, to whom shall we go? We got nothing. You have the words of eternal life. That is the childlike faith that God calls us to. And it is when we recognize that no matter how much we have, how much we've earned, or how much we've done, we got nothing. It's then that we are perfectly positioned to find and follow him and find everything. The Christian life is not a success story. It is not about decent, respectable people achieving and accomplishing great things and earning eternal life. It is about people, rich or poor, recognizing our complete inability to save ourselves and choosing not to trust in us and our wealth, but rather to be all in followers of Jesus Christ who trust only in what he has done, recognizing him as the true treasure. You know, our Lord himself gave us a symbol to remind us of that dependence. It's a picture of childlike faith and dependence upon him. It's found in the elements of the Lord's Supper, where we take a simple piece of bread to be reminded of the one whose body was broken for us. Where we take a cup of juice and remember the one whose blood was spilt for us. Why? Because if righteousness could be attained through the law, the rich young ruler's plan, then Christ died for nothing. But it can't. No matter what we possess or conquer or accomplish, none of us are adequate, worthy, or able to earn, to merit God's favor. It is simply a gift. One to be received with childlike hope, joy, and thanksgiving. This morning, we have a bunch of kids with us, which is so great because all around us are the wide-eyed reminders of the beauty of humble dependence on another. We don't typically have kids with us when we take communion. We thought it'd be beautiful to do so. 
Maybe for you parents, this will give you an opportunity, even today, as your kids wonder, what was that all about? To teach them and to remind yourself of the beauty and the importance of childlike faith in Jesus. So this morning, we take communion as an expression of our rejection of the self-sufficient deceitfulness of riches and our hunger to humbly abandon ourselves to the arms of the only one who is worthy of our followership and of our life, the only true treasure. When you came in, you should have gotten a little packet of the elements. If you didn't, would you just slip your hand up and we'll have an usher come to you. Just keep your hand up and they will find you and bring you one. I'd like to ask us all to close our eyes and to take just a moment of reflection. I want to ask you to honestly reflect on what are you trusting in as 2021 begins? Is it your bank account? Is it your ability to handle life? Honestly, are you trusting in yourself or are you humbly, like a child, trusting and following Jesus? Take a few minutes to talk to God about that and then we'll partake together. As you take the elements, they're a little bit tricky. There's, there's two tabs. There's a very, very thin one. If you peel that back, that'll give you access to the wafer. And then go ahead and also peel open the other one carefully and open the juice. And we'll take these back to back. Our Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which was shed for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we this weekend begin a new year, may we not believe that we are somehow enough. May we learn from the lessons and the hardships of 2020. May we understand that all we have and all we've done mean very little in the face of a world of such uncertainty. 
May we trust not in our riches, but in our God. May we love not the comfort in this life or place our hope in a better year to come. But instead, may we love the one who brings true joy and trust the one who gives certain hope no matter what we face in life. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we're so thankful that you are the one who is worthy and that only in you can we be made worthy. Oh, God, may we not love another God, if something else has our hearts, would you convict us this morning? May we understand that you truly are the pearl of great price. Help us, Lord, like Peter, to see you. Help us, Lord, to understand that it is in you that we may find true treasure. May we trust in you this coming year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.